I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hi, everyone. How are we all doing today? I am coming to you on a Sunday morning. Yesterday was Max's birthday, and it was such a wonderful day. We went to this 101-year-old restaurant in Los Feliz, and it was so much fun. Max and I really love going to different cool restaurants and things like that, so it was very on-brand for us to do so. And for a birthday present, I booked him a massage this morning, so that is currently where he is, and it's his first ever massage. I don't know if this is a common thing with men, or I guess I should say straight men, that it's common for them to have not had a professional massage before, but I was blown away and he was gifted a gift card five years ago, the first birthday that we were together, from his sister to go and get a massage at this place that he's currently getting a massage right now, and just never made the appointment. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to at least call and make the appointment for him and have that be part of the present. But then of course, the prices have gone up. So I guess we kind of went in on the present together and hopefully right now he is relaxing and his body is feeling nice and comfortable and all is well. I'll be going out later tonight with his sister and his parents and we're going to have a little drink and chit chat. And then there's even more festivities this coming week with Thanksgiving. My personal life has been so busy and crazy. It was like the road trip, and then we had this wedding weekend, and then my mom was in town, and then Max's birthday, and then Thanksgiving, and then soon it's going to be Christmas and New Year's, and then it's all too much. <laughs> but it's all really wonderful, fantastic stuff. 
In other news, I just got a new to me, not necessarily new to the world office chair from Max's sister, Haley. And I'm so excited because my ass is no longer going to fall asleep by the end of work at the end of the day. I was literally just sitting in like a wooden kitchen chair at my desk for like years and years. And now I finally have an office chair and I'm telling you, my butt feels fantastic. All right, I will give you all the spiel for everything that's coming up on Patreon and all that good stuff at the end of the episode. I'm going to need to pick Max up sooner rather than later, so let's get into this week's topic. As a kid, I was obsessed with the Disney movie Pocahontas, so much so that I had a Pocahontas bathing suit, bedding, and other merch, and I also had a Pocahontas-themed birthday party. I thought she was gorgeous, courageous, and badass. I was supremely jealous of her hair, and in my mind, she also kind of looked like my mom. Disney's Pocahontas is supposedly based on a real-life person named Pocahontas and the arrival of the English settlers from Virginia Company. However, the film heavily romanticizes the relationship between Pocahontas and the settler John Smith and the legend of her saving his life. Though the movie is fantastic, it doesn't paint a realistic picture of who Pocahontas was or the reality of her relationship with the white settlers and John Smith. I also think this movie is a very effective tool in whitewashing America's history and helping to further enforce the narrative of the kind settlers and the friendly quote-unquote Indians. The moral of the movie is kind of like, well, we both did bad things and that's bad, but in the end, the white people are still more on the right side of history. At least that's kind of what I recall getting from the movie the last time I saw it. The movie is most likely based on the legend that has endured since the 1600s, perpetuated by John Smith himself, that Pocahontas saved his life, therefore finding common ground between two cultures, creating peace that has endured for centuries. Doesn't that sound nice? But that all seems a little too easy. And as we know now, there is much more to the story. However, it is a little bit hard to decipher what the true story was because Native Americans at this time did not have the same kind of written language that we do now that we could understand. So a lot of it is either from oral history, from the Native side of things, or the more commonly perpetuated narrative of the white settlers that has been taught for centuries and centuries. I feel like that is kind of the prominent narrative, and that is why there is this strong-held belief that Pocahontas did save John Smith and all of this stuff because we believed everything that he wrote and that a lot of the other settlers wrote, and then that was put into history books and so on and so forth. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. I'm going to get into everything in more detail as I go on, but... I do want to clarify that I did just kind of have to jumble together what seemed most likely or the thing that I saw most often in my sources, so I may not get everything right, and I'm really doing my best. Please feel free to correct me, reach out, and let me know what I got wrong so that I can address it on the next episode, but I really am trying my best to be as, one, respectful as possible to all of the different Native American tribes and people that are involved in this story, but two, I'm really going to do my best to give you as accurate of a depiction of who this person was or may have been. One thing I do know is that Pocahontas is actually a nickname. 
The name she seems to have been born with was Matoaka, or in other sources, Emonute, the daughter of Chief Powhatan, also known as the Wahansanaka chief, who was the paramount chief of the Powhatan tribe, also called the Algonquin people, an alliance of about 30 different Algonquin-speaking groups in the present-day state of Virginia. At its height, the Powhatan chiefdom had a population of about 25,000 people. Each of the 30 tribes had their own leader, but Pocahontas's father was the chief of them all. Her father is often referred to as Powhatan a lot in my research, which is a little bit confusing to me because that also seems to be the name of the tribe. However, I am going to go on and refer to him as Powhatan or Powhatan Chief or Chief of Powhatan as I go through the story because it's a little bit easier for me. And like I said, that is what I saw in a lot of my research that he was referred to as. In the Powhatan chiefdom, there were priests who were spiritual leaders, political advisors, medical doctors, historians, and enforcers of Powhatan behavioral norms. That doesn't sound very uncivilized to me. Pocahontas's birth name, Matawaka, means bright stream between the hills. The nickname Pocahontas means little wanton, but some have also interpreted it as playful one, or maybe even ill-behaved child. Her childhood was most likely spent foraging for food and firewood, farming, and helping members of the Powhatan household prepare for large feasts. Many have thought of Pocahontas as a princess throughout history, and at some point when she was alive, she was revered as such, it seems. But in their tribe, they did not treat her like a princess. From what I've read, she would have been more similar to the president's child than princess status. However, she was still given some special treatment. As by all accounts, she was her dad's favorite, and as his daughter, she also received more supervision and training and was given more responsibility and higher discipline was expected of her. The date of her birth is unknown, but historians have been able to estimate that she was probably born around 1596, as when John Smith described meeting her in the spring of 1608, he said she was a child of 10 years old. In 1616, however, he wrote another letter in which he described her as being 12 or 13 the first time they met. We're going to get some varying stories from John Smith, so remember that. In doing my research about what childhood was like for the Powhatan people, it seems that as a young girl, Pocahontas would have worn little to no clothing, and her hair would have been shaven except for a small section in the back that was grown long and braided. Some research is less specific about the hair and states that she probably would not have cut it at all throughout her childhood and just had very, very long hair. As a child, Pocahontas wouldn't have been allowed to attend certain ceremonies. As she grew older, she would have learned woman's work, even though she was the chief's daughter. Besides bearing and rearing children, women were responsible for building houses, did all the farming, the cooking, and collected water needed to cook and drink. They also gathered firewood for the fire that the women were charged to keep going at all times and made items such as mats, pots, wooden spoons, platters, and mortars. Women were also gatherers for the men and would process any meat the men brought home as well as tanning hides for clothing. Women's roles were seen as just as valuable as men's roles in this society, and Pocahontas would have learned all of this before the time she turned 13. Any information about Pocahontas's mom is unknown, and it's assumed that she was from a lower status. From oral histories of the tribes, usually the child is named after the mother. Since a lot of people assume that Pocahontas was her real name, it looks like they also assume that that was her mother's name. 
Oral history also suggests that her mother died in childbirth, but it also explains that the mothers are usually sent away after the birth of their child. The child then stays with them until they're weaned, then sometimes returned to the father. So it's really not clear what happened to her. Other accounts say that she died and the chief was devastated. I don't know what to believe. The Mattaponi Reservation people are descendants of the Powhatan, and in their oral history, Pocahontas's mother was the first wife of the chief, and that Pocahontas was named after her. So that's kind of the most basic information that we have about her. When Pocahontas was young, Powhatan's rule was threatened by the arrival of the Spanish, French, and the English. After Queen Elizabeth I died, the conversion of quote-unquote savages to Christianity became of the utmost importance. On May 14, 1607, the Virginia Company settlers landed on Jamestown Island to establish an English colony. Within days of landing, they were attacked by the Powhatan people and the English had to find a way to resolve the conflict. They began trading with them, slowly building somewhat of a relationship. From some accounts, it says Captain John Smith was allegedly pretty good at this. However, not good enough because he would soon be captured by Powhatan's brother, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Although they were permitted to land, Powhatan tried to discourage these settlers from staying. When they built a fort on James River, the natives attacked, but were repelled by a ship's cannon. After that, some of the ships ended up leaving, but about a hundred men were still at the James River. Over the next few months, there would be more interactions between the natives and the settlers. Some friendly, some not so much. John Smith arrived in Virginia with 100 other settlers in April of 1607 and was living on the fort on James River. He was captured in December of 1607 and brought to the Powhatan's capital. John Smith has a few differing accounts of this capture, like I mentioned, but by his first account, there was a great feast followed by a long talk with the chief of Powhatan. John Smith does not mention Pocahontas being there in his first letter about his first meeting. Historians suggest that the Powhatan chief was potentially trying to keep his friends close and enemies closer by offering John a plot of land in the town of Capahosic, which is located near the capital. This way, they could keep an eye on him and the other settlers. Later, when John wrote to Queen Anne of Denmark, the wife of King James, he wrote that his capture included the threat of death, but, quote, at the minute of my execution, she hazarded the beating out of her own brains to save mine. And not only that, but she prevailed with her father, and I was safely conducted to Jamestown. She, of course, being Pocahontas. Well, that is quite a different story than the first telling. He expanded even further on this narrative in 1624 in General History, published after Pocahontas' death. In this version, he was taken to the chief where, quote, two great stones were brought before Powhatan, then as many as could lay hands on him, Smith, dragged him to them and thereon laid his head, and being ready with their clubs to berate out his brains, Pocahontas, the king's dearest daughter, when no entreaty could prevail, got his head in her arms and laid her own upon his to save him from death. These later accounts, of course, are heavily disputed. Duh, he kept changing the story. Many have guessed the possible reasoning as to why John Smith appeared to have changed his story. One opinion that I saw often and tend to agree with is that this more heroic account was written once Pocahontas had already become famous, and he had some sort of motive to amplify their story, 
whether it be for his own notoriety or her protection. It does seem by most accounts that John Smith and Pocahontas didn't think negatively of each other, and John Smith seemed to be fond of the young girl, but luckily not in a romantic way. It does seem to be true that the colonists had some sort of relationship with Pocahontas, as she would often play games with the boys on the settlement and bring different provisions and things like that over to the settlers as well. And this was seen as a sign of peace. After John's capture, it seems that the natives and the settlers remained friendly for a time, and Pocahontas would continue to be a frequent visitor of Jamestown, delivering messages from her father, playing with the kids, and bringing food and furs to trade for hatchets and trinkets. This wouldn't last forever, though, because as the colonists got greedy and began expanding their settlements, the Powhatans began to feel more and more threatened by them. In 1609, John Smith made a trip to negotiate with the Powhatan chief, and things turned sour. The settlers were demanding more food, but the natives had nothing to spare after a terrible drought. The English then began threatening to burn the tribes down to get what they wanted. With this kind of hostility, it's no wonder that these negotiations were heated. By some accounts, both the Powhatan chief and Pocahontas were there as the host of it. In a later account from John Smith, Pocahontas then snuck into his camp at night to warn him that her father had ordered him to be killed, giving him and his men an opportunity to escape. After this, Pocahontas was not permitted to visit Jamestown anymore. This account has been disputed multiple times, as a child would not typically be privy to these sorts of ceremonies or decisions made by the adults in the tribe. I personally doubt that Pocahontas knew anything, but again, John Smith decided to embellish the story for some reason. John Smith was then elected president of the Jamestown Council, but was shortly thereafter injured by gunpowder explosion and was forced to return to England. Pocahontas was told that Smith had actually died. The years 1609 and 1610 would be very important ones for Pocahontas. She would have been about 14 years old, which was adulthood for the Powhatan people, and a suitable age for marriage. She began dressing like a Powhatan woman, most likely, wearing a deerskin apron and leather mantle in the winter, since she was of high status. She might have also worn a one-shouldered fringe deerskin dress when encountering visitors, which seems to be the inspiration for the Disney character, but I only saw this description in one source. But since it was so particular to the costume in the movie, I was like, well, I have to add that detail. It was also said that Pocahontas would have began decorating herself with tattoos at this time. Another detail added to the Disney character, but the real Pocahontas's tattoos would have most likely also been on her face, which Disney decided against. Powhatan women would also grow their hair out entirely and would either wear it in loose braids, braid it into one plate with bangs, or once married cut short the same length all around like a bob. It's said that in 1610, Pocahontas married Cocoam, who was described as a private captain or chief counselor to the chief. Cocoam was actually the younger brother of the chief of the Potomac tribe. According to oral history, Pocahontas and Cocoam lived initially in the Werowakamo village, then later moved to Cocoam's home village, the Potomac, where Pocahontas gave birth to a son. Pocahontas is then not mentioned in any official records from the English until 1613. 
For any of you who watched the Pocahontas sequel movie, you may be aware that they show what happens after her story with John Smith and the fact that she was taken away to England. And this is considered to being a capture or an abduction in real history. Very, very different from what Disney had demonstrated. And Pocahontas was captured in the context of the first Anglo-Powhatan War, which was a conflict between the settlers and the Native Americans that began in the summer of 1609. By this time, Jamestown Colony was flourishing, and in 1612, another captain, Samuel Argall, arrived to bring reinforcements and do more exploring. When Argall heard that the chief's daughter, Pocahontas, was living near his trading expedition, he devised a plan to kidnap her and hold her for ransom. He coerced Coquam's sister-in-law, his brother's wife, to lure Pocahontas to come aboard his ship. Apparently, when she came aboard, Coquam was then murdered by the settlers. Some oral traditions state that their son survived and was raised by Mattapony women. Once she was captured, Argall sent word to Powhatan that his daughter would be returned once the chief released the English prisoners he held and returned various stolen weapons and tools. Powhatan then sent part of the ransom and let it be known that he was open to negotiations. He also asked that his daughter be kept well. Pocahontas would be captured for an entire year, where, by some accounts, it seems that she was treated like a guest and treated quite well. But this could have been twisted due to the people who wrote her history. In this time, Pocahontas was moved to a new settlement and was put in the care of Alexander Whitaker, a Calvinist minister who instructed her in the Christian faith and taught her English. When she was baptized, she took the Christian name Rebecca. In the book, The True Story of Pocahontas, The Other Side of History, co-authored by Dr. Linwood, Little Bear, Costello, and Angela L. Daniel, they challenge the myth of a friendly abduction and argue that kidnapped people held hostage for long periods of time can oftentimes begin to identify with their kidnappers for survival, a phenomenon commonly known as Stockholm Syndrome. We obviously cannot know what Pocahontas's mental health was like in this time, but you can imagine it would be quite traumatic for a wife and mother to be ripped from her home and held hostage for ransom. I also wonder if she knew her husband had been killed, because if she did, that would add a whole other level to her tragedy. According to Costello's account, Pocahontas became depressed and withdrawn during her captivity, and her captors even feared for her life. Apparently to make things easier, and make ransom more possible, word got back to the Powhatan people about how upset Pocahontas had become and sent her older sister and her sister's husband to help care for Pocahontas. Again, according to Costello, when her sister arrived, Pocahontas allegedly admitted to have been sexually assaulted. Costello emphasized that Mattapony's sacred oral history is very clear on this. It was during this time that she met John Rolfe, a 28-year-old successful tobacco planter. John Rolfe had come to Virginia in 1610 with his wife, Sarah, and their newborn child, but sadly, both wife and baby would not survive long after their arrival in Jamestown. He then began a plantation for tobacco, which he called Verena Farms. Apparently, when John met Pocahontas, he fell in love and asked Governor Thomas Dale for permission to marry her. 
They also alerted Pocahontas's father and the rest of the Powhatan people that she would marry John Rolfe, and they even sent out one of Pocahontas's uncles to represent their people at the wedding. Rolfe is described as a pious man, and he agonized over falling in love and marrying a quote-unquote heathen, even though Pocahontas had converted to Christianity and taken a new name. When he wrote to Thomas Dale, he described how marrying Pocahontas would save her soul. He said, quote, Motivated not by the unbridled desire of carnal affection, but for the good of this plantation, for the honor of our country, for the glory of God, for my own salvation, namely Pocahontas, to whom my hearty and best thoughts are and have been a long time so entangled and enthralled in so intricate a labyrinth that I was even a wary to unwind myself throughout. They married on April 5th, 1614, and lived for two years on Verena Farms. They had a son in 1615, which they named Thomas. It is believed by oral history through the Mataponi people that Thomas was conceived via rape and Pocahontas was pregnant out of wedlock. I really wish I knew what the mindset of Pocahontas was in this time and whether or not this was a forced union or something that she wanted to do. It all seems like it happened fairly quickly to me. There's only a couple years time since the time that her husband, Cocoam, was murdered and she was ripped away from her son to then being impregnated and meant to marry someone else. I feel like that would be a very traumatic, quick thing. Even if it was for the best and she loved this person, I still feel like that's a lot of things to happen to one person in a very short amount of time that would have to be very, very traumatic. So I wish that there was a more realistic account or a more descriptive account of what her experiences were like during this time. But I really am one to lean toward the way that the Mataponi oral history has told it in that she was most likely very depressed and withdrawn. And even if John Rolfe was someone who showed her some kindness, maybe that was even more of an influence for her to go along with marrying him. It's just really, really tough when we don't know her side of the story to have to speculate what kind of marriage and relationship this was and whether or not it was in her best interest. But if it wasn't in her best interest individually, it was definitely in the best interest of the relations between the settlers and the native people. Their marriage created some peace between Jamestown and the Powhatan tribes, and this era is known as the Peace of Pocahontas, which will go on for eight years. Their marriage was also a net positive for England, as Pocahontas was seen as a success story in England's plan to convert the native people to Christianity, and they could kind of parade her around as this great example of what they've been able to accomplish. They brought Pocahontas to England as a symbol of the tamed New World quote-unquote savage and the success of the Virginia colony. The Rolfs traveled to England in 1616, accompanied by 11 other Powhatan people, including a holy man by the name of Tomoko. When Pocahontas was in London, she learned that John Smith was actually still alive, though it is debated as to whether or not the two actually ever saw each other once this was discovered. 
When John Smith learned of Pocahontas in England, he wrote to Queen Anne asking that Pocahontas be treated with respect and as a, quote, royal visitor. He also wrote a note of warning, stating that if she was to be treated badly, her, quote, present love to us and Christianity might turn to scorn and fury, and England may lose the chance to, quote, rightly have a kingdom by her means. So this is the thing. Do we think that John Smith truly had her best interests at heart, or did he have the best interest of the English slash American government that was moving forward? I feel like it was in his best interest and the best interest of the settlers to treat Pocahontas well, or else there would be even more fighting back in Jamestown. So I don't know if I see this as being a selfless act of kindness or more as a strategy. It seems like Pocahontas was really wined and dined while in England, just as John Smith had requested. She and Tomokomo met King James at the old banqueting house in the Palace of Whitehall and saw a performance of the famed poet and playwright Ben Jonson's masque, The Vision of Delight. That's pretty high-class stuff. According to those who were there, the king was so unassuming that Pocahontas and Tomokomo didn't even realize it was the king that they had met until it was explained to them afterward. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, Pocahontas was considered by many to be a princess, but she wasn't actually a princess, but a daughter of a chief. This meant about the same thing to the English, so she was presented as a princess to the English public. An engraving of Pocahontas from 1616 reads, Madawaka, alias Rebecca, daughter of the most powerful prince of the Powhatan Empire of Virginia. This is to mean that many of the English considered the Powhatan chief to be the ruler of an empire, most likely due to how people like John Smith revered him by referring to him as Powhatan, their chief king. Though the higher class seemed to revere Pocahontas, their manipulation of the media didn't seem to affect the way that the English public viewed her. They saw Pocahontas as more of a curiosity, a spectacle. Eventually, the Rolfs moved to the suburb of Brentford, Middlesex for a while, and it's also said that they spent some time visiting John Rolfe's family in Norfolk as well. The Rolfe family moved back to Virginia in March of 1617, as John Rolfe was now the secretary to the colony. They had gotten as far as Gravesend on the River Thames when Pocahontas suddenly became gravely ill. It's thought that she was suffering from tuberculosis. They brought her ashore, where she unfortunately passed away. She would have only been about 21 or 22 years old at the time. It's thought that she was buried in a vault beneath the chancel of the local parish church in Gravesend, but the original church was destroyed by a fire in 1727, and the exact site of her grave is unknown. Worried for his son, who had also begun to fall ill, John Rolfe left him in the care of Sue Lewis Stuckley, then to his uncle Henry Rolfe in England. Thomas never saw his mother or father ever again. John Rolfe continued on his voyage to Virginia and in 1619 remarried once again to a woman named Jane Pierce, daughter of English colonist Captain William Pierce. They had a daughter in 1620, but John died in 1622, shortly after a massacre during the Second Anglo-Powhatan Wars. The Powhatan chief also died within a within a year of his daughter, and as a result, the peace of Pocahontas began to disintegrate. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. 
Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The story of Pocahontas was somewhat forgotten for a time, until the 1800s when we were looking for nationalist stories and Pocahontas was brought back into the public zeitgeist. Camilla Townsend, author of Pocahontas and the Powhatan Dilemma and historian, says that the reason she thinks the story of Pocahontas is so popular, not among natives, but among the descendants of colonists, is because the idea that she was a quote-unquote good Indian who admired the white man admired Christianity, admired the culture, and wanted to have peace with these people. She was even willing to live with these people rather than her own and marry John Rolfe rather than, again, one of her own. Camila Townsend says, quote, The whole idea makes people in white American culture feel good about our history, that we were not doing anything wrong to the Indians, but really we're helping them and the good ones appreciated it. One question that I'm left with after learning the true story of Pocahontas is how did the love story between John Smith and Pocahontas start, especially since she ended up marrying John Rolfe, not John Smith? The idea that there may have been a romance between Pocahontas and John Smith began in the early 1800s, if not earlier, due to the publications by a man named John Davis in a book called Travels in the United States of America and Captain Smith and Princess Pocahontas, an Indian tale, from 1805. Oftentimes, Pocahontas' age is adjusted by the author, usually ranging from age 8 to 14 when she met John Smith, depending on how badly they want the romance to appear possible. John Davis made Pocahontas 14 when she met John Smith. All of this led up to the creation of the Disney animated film Pocahontas, released in 1995. This was the first Disney film to be based on a real historical character, and the first Disney film to show an interracial couple. In the Disney film, John Smith, Governor Ratcliffe, a young settler named Thomas, and others come to Virginia Company in 1607. From the website d23.com. The first Disney animated feature based on historical fact, Pocahontas tells the story of the meeting of the English settlers in Jamestown with the local tribe of Powhatan Indians. 
the adventurous young Native American woman Pocahontas, along with her constant companions, Miko, a raccoon, and Flit, a hummingbird, visit Grandmother Willow, a counseling tree spirit, because she is uncertain about the path her life should take. She soon meets the brave English Captain John Smith, and while opening his eyes to an understanding and respect for the world around him, the two fall in love. The other English settlers, led by Governor Ratcliffe, are intent on finding gold in the New World and become convinced that the Native Americans are hiding the precious substance from them. Thomas, an inexperienced settler, kills the Native American brave Cocoam, but Smith lets the Native Americans think he is responsible, so he is condemned to death. In begging her father, Chief Powhatan, to spare Smith's life, Pocahontas finds that her path in life is to be instrumental in establishing the early peace between the Jamestown settlers and her tribe. Smith, however, is severely wounded by an enraged Ratcliffe and must return to England. He and Pocahontas part, each knowing their lives are richer for the love they share. Disney did cast a few Native American voice actors for their characters, including Irene Bedard, who voiced Pocahontas, James Apalmet Fall, the voice of Cocoam, and Russell Means, the voice of Powhatan, and a few other minor characters. Other lead actors that lent their voices to the film were Mel Gibson, who voiced John Smith, racist piece of shit, and Christian Bale, also problematic, who voiced John Smith's pal Thomas. There was something about the 1990s that really grasped onto stories about Native Americans. Before then, there was Geronimo, an American legend, Squanto, a warrior's tale, and of course, Dances with Wolves. One person in an article for The Atlantic wrote, Pocahontas was a clunky attempt at the sort of watered-down corporate, quote, inclusivity seen everywhere in the 90s that downplays differences of background and opinion and completely ignores the firm wheel of history in favor of a fuzzy, feel-good narrative that viewers never have to really ponder afterwards. The look and style of the film were taken as inspiration from the filmmaker's numerous trips to Jamestown, Virginia, along with research into the colonial period. The team also consulted with Native American scholars throughout various stages of making the film to incorporate authentic aspects of the Powhatan culture into the film. One of these people was Shirley Little Dove Custolo McGowan, a descendant of Virginia's Powhatan Indians. James Pentecost, a producer for the film, first met with her in June of 1992 while visiting the Native American Festival in Jamestown with a couple of Disney writers. By the way, I would love to go to that festival. I went on a few field trips growing up to a different to a few different Native American reservations and it was so much fun and very very educational. Little Dove McGowan would consult the Disney Studios 3 times about the film, but she eventually grew aggravated with the production as she felt that they weren't adhering enough to historical accuracy. She then ended any further participation. In my research, I also discovered a very smart edit that the filmmakers made during the writing process. Originally, Pocahontas's sidekick was going to be a comedic talking turkey named Red Feather, who thought of himself as a ladies' man, to be voiced by SNL alum John Candy. After Candy's death in 1994, they decided that the animals in the movie should not talk and rewrote the sidekicks. Smart move in my book. 
From one article online, a writer says that the choice to put Pocahontas and John Smith as romantic partners was problematic for many reasons. Firstly, that they had to drastically change the age of Pocahontas's character to make it work, and they could never have a happy ending for their love story since the real John Smith eventually jets back to America and Pocahontas would later marry John Rolfe. So, they had to come up with some weird illogical ending where John Smith is so wounded that the tribe couldn't possibly heal him. Or, as this writer says, Smith's wounds are so severe that Pocahontas's tribe's proven effective natural holistic remedies have to be ignored so that he can spend many months at sea bleeding on a bacteria-ridden, rat-infected ship. Yikes. I've never thought about that hole in the story before, but solid point. As for the inspiration behind the look and character of Pocahontas, one of the animators, Glenn Keane, recalls meeting Little Dove McGowan on one of his trips to Jamestown. With her was her sister, Debbie White Dove, and they introduced themselves as descendants of Pocahontas. Keane recalls, quote, The way Shirley stood there, all I can say is there was a spiritual presence with her. There was a dignity about her. She spoke very calmly with long, pregnant pauses between everything she said, and she just looked through me. I started stumbling on my words. I don't know how to refer to Native Americans. Then I felt maybe this was how John Smith felt when he met Pocahontas. And as I stood there, I mean, I took a picture of both of them, and between their faces was Pocahontas's face in my mind. I could see her. They were both beautiful. They had nobility in the way they stood. All the way throughout the film, I had that photo on my desk there as a reminder of that. If only they had treated her and respected her with that level of admiration as well, because then maybe she could have been more helpful to your film. Keen also looked at a 1620 depiction of Pocahontas from a history book to inspire the look of the character. He also had another aspect of the character to keep in mind— Keen once said, we're doing a mature love story here, and we've got to draw her as such. She has to be sexy. Ugh, well, that makes me feel weird, especially because now that I know that she's actually 10 or 11 years old and they just aged her up, why do we have to sexualize her so much? What's even weirder is that he likens her to a tribal Eve, a la Adam and Eve. I feel like that is kind of a negative. (laughs) However, the designs have been criticized for being generically native rather than specific to the Powhatan nation. Some have also pointed out that Pocahontas and her friend Nakoma both have absurdly small noses, which is obvious compared to everyone else in the tribe, meaning the men and older women, since they're the only young women we see in the movie, have very prominent noses. When the movie was released, Native Americans around the country began to come together in protest. One group in Spokane, Washington, planned to protest outside of the movie theater when it came out in June of 1995, upset about the fact that Disney was changing history. Similar protests have been done after Disney released Aladdin in 1993, with an intense emotional response from the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. When asked what she thought of the film, Little Dove McGowan said, This is a nice film, if it didn't carry the name Pocahontas. Disney promised me historical accuracy— but there will be a lot to correct when I go into classrooms. McGowan also had an issue with Pocahontas and John Smith's relationship being turned into a love story, saying, 
Disney originally told the story of Pocahontas as we know her, a child between the ages of 10 and 12 who showed reverence, but certainly no love, for John Smith. By making her older and creating a romance, you lose the notion of children as our future, a way of bridging the gap between cultures. In fact, I think that would have been an even more impactful story, especially because this movie was made for children. It shows them that they can be a change in the world as well. And this little anecdote also reminds me of a very smart move that MGM made with The Wizard of Oz. As at one point they had written a love story between Dorothy and the Scarecrow that was thankfully scrapped. By doing so, they allowed a child to run the show and be the primary protagonist. Although they never got rid of that line in the end with Dorothy saying, I think I'll miss you most of all. The producer of Pocahontas, Pentecost, agrees, saying that the movie is much more a love story than a history lesson, and defends it like this, quote, People are still arguing over who killed Kennedy and Lincoln. The further back you go, the more complicated it gets. We never say that the two end up together, but as in all great romances, the implication is there. But they don't end up together, and it's like very clear that they don't. I don't know, I just think it's so ridiculous. All right, now I want to start getting into a couple of the problematic tropes and things that occurred in Disney's Pocahontas. One of those is the quote-unquote magical native trope. Paul Astell, the author of Feeling Animated, writes a review of the film saying, quote, unless you're dealing specifically with myths and legends, Native Americans themselves are not magical. While harmony with nature and the seasons is a big part of Native American cultures, the filmmakers take this concept to ludicrous lengths by presenting them almost as deities, able to do any number of foolhardy things, like jumping off 100-foot cliffs and stealing bear cubs from their mothers, with no consequences whatsoever. Pocahontas suddenly developing the skills of Google Translate by listening with her heart is just the icing on the cake. It's lazy and mildly insulting, both to Native Americans and the audience. This also reminds me a lot of the magical Negro trope, where a white person goes to a Native or Black person for some sort of wisdom, and their sole role in the story or the movie or the book or whatever is to impart wisdom onto the white protagonist. They don't have any sort of agency or reality to their own character. They are just there purely to support a white protagonist. One of the other more glaringly obvious problematic moments in the movie is the scene with the song Savages. In the movie, the love between Pocahontas and John Smith was not enough to quell the racial tensions boiling in Jamestown, and the Virginia Company and the Powhatan tribe prepare to go to war. The point that they seem to be making in this song is that prejudice of any kind is wrong without showing the differences of injustice between the sides. One clearly has the advantage over the other. The settlers had guns and diseases, and the natives had no defenses. There is no way there was an equal playing field here in this war, and it is clearly the settlers who are in the wrong. To 2023 ears, the lyrics of this song are also incredibly jarring. There were also initial lyrics that were eventually changed as well, and I'm going to add both of them here. The song goes, What can you expect from filthy little heathens? Here's what you get when races are diverse. 
In the soundtrack version, it says, their whole disgusting race is like a curse. Their skins are hellish red. They're only good when dead. They're vermin, as I said, and worse. Then the chorus comes in, calling them savages, savages. And Ratcliffe sings, barely even human. The settlers also refer to the natives as dirty shrieking devils. But the original line was dirty redskin devils. In contrast, Chief Powhatan calls the settlers demons and greedy. Quote, beneath that milky hide, there's emptiness inside. They also refer to the white people as killers to the core. Now, I sincerely hope that no little white child in the 90s learned this song, then taunted a native classmate by singing it, but I'm sure that's something that happened. I just don't think that that blatant racism had to be shown in a child's film. There's other ways they could have gotten that same message across. Throughout the entire film, words like savages, heathens, pagans, devils, and primitive are thrown around. It can be argued that that was the language used at the time, but what service is it doing to perpetuate this language into a modern culture? These terms all reflect something inferior, wild, and unwieldy, and reinforces white supremacy. On the other hand, the film shows nothing of the English's greed, deceit, racism, and genocide that were major historical factors to the story. The big overriding problem that seems to loom over Pocahontas, the animated film as a whole, is the damaging stereotypes that it perpetuates. For more than half a century before Disney's adaptation, the dominant image of Native Americans were that of savages. In the 90s, American history was pushing the idea of the noble savage on us, which portrays American Indians as a once great but dying culture that did magical things like talk to trees and animals. They are not a dying culture except for the fact that we have actively done our best to kill it. Both the beliefs that natives are terrifying and evil to the belief that they are gentle and good are both created by a Eurocentric ambivalence to the entire race of people they did their best to destroy. It's the ultimate cover-up that we see over and over and over again as Americans do their best to make themselves appear as the good guy in every historical event or belittle the experience of minority groups. It's really weird that Disney made this whole propaganda film basically to say, yeah, the white people came and encroached on their land, but you know what? It all turned out for the best. They wanted to be taken over. It's fine. What the fuck? Lastly, Pocahontas herself is rooted in the Indian princess stereotype. Writer Gail Guthrie Valiskakis wrote about the 1920s depiction of the Indian princess as a shapely maiden with a name like Winona, Minnehaha, Iona, or even Hiawatha. She sits posed on a rock or in a canoe, seemingly suspended on a mountain-rimmed moonlit lake, wearing a tight-fitted red tunic and headband with one feather, and she has the perfect face of a white female. Disney's Pocahontas is a 90s version of the Red Tunic Lady. She combines the sexually alluring qualities of innocence and availability. Gross! I think it's wonderful that the world knows the name Pocahontas, and that she has become such a historical icon. But I truly believe that Disney did her, and all Native American people, a disservice by not telling a more truthful story. Take some artistic license, that is to be understood, 
But romanticizing a real child and romanticizing an untrue relationship is very damaging as it pushes a completely different narrative than the truth. I think most people will think that the real Pocahontas actually fell in love with the real John Smith, then was brokenhearted when he had to go back to England, just as Disney told us. Disney also came out with a straight-to-video sequel to Pocahontas, Pocahontas 2, Journey to a New World, in 1998, in which they explore the relationship between John Rolfe and Pocahontas. I don't go too into this, but as it still pertains to Pocahontas' real life, I want us to now compare how Disney told the story. If I saw this movie, it was forever ago, and I don't remember it, but... According to the internet, it takes place several years after the first movie, and John Smith is presumed to be dead due to a plot by Governor Ratcliffe in order to declare war against the Powhatan Nation. In order to prevent this, John Rolfe is sent to Jamestown for negotiations, which is where he meets Pocahontas. Pocahontas volunteers to travel to England in order to prevent war from breaking out, and they set off. Very different than Pocahontas being kidnapped and brought to England. <laughs> The film depicts Pocahontas preparing to meet King James and Queen Anne, and she is taught to dance and how to act in front of English society. At the end of the film, Pocahontas is planning to leave John Rolfe in England. Little did she know, he was on board and had given up his new assignment as Lord Advisor of the Royal Court to return to Jamestown with Pocahontas. He says in the end, I have a duty to honor what is in my heart, Pocahontas. They then share a romantic kiss as the ship sails into the sunset. As we know, this is very different than the real story where Pocahontas is kidnapped, brought to England. This strange white man seems to obsessively fall in love with her, force her into marriage and mothering her child, and then she dies on the way back to her people. So... Not the happiest of happy endings, but Disney, for some reason, saw fit to create their own little happy ending for Pocahontas. I really, really enjoyed going into this episode and learning more about what the real person was behind the Disney character of Pocahontas. I've always loved the movie, and I've always really, really loved the character of Pocahontas as well, and I've known for years that that was the wrong story. I knew a little bit of the real story here and there, and it luckily has become more well-known that Disney's story is not, in fact, historically accurate. But I did see that it was very important to point out where those inaccuracies were, especially if it's a movie that you're ever going to be watching with your kids or any kids in general. I think that if you're going to enjoy it, it's just important to be able to discuss how sometimes studios change their movies into something that's more entertaining, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. And it is really upsetting because every time I see a movie that's like based on a true story, I want to believe that they're at least trying to get it as accurately as possible. And if you're going to name a movie after a real person, why not try a little bit harder to make it factual? I think the story would have been just as important if Pocahontas was a young child who was brave enough to help the settlers and go against her father, which I guess is problematic to begin with. But if that's the story they wanted to tell, they didn't have to make her this older teenager and create this whole love story surrounding it either. In fact, 
I feel like my dramatic young self would have loved a more true depiction of the actual events that happened. I think that would have been really interesting, and there's, of course, ways to make it more kid-friendly. What were you thinking, Disney? Although, I do have to say to wrap up this episode that Colors of the Wind is one of the best Disney songs ever written. Let it go can suck it. All right, that's everything that I have for you today on Pocahontas. I want to give you a little bit of a Patreon update. The notes that I took for Dopa's death ended up being much more in-depth than I thought it was going to be. So I'm still working on that episode, but it's going to be up very shortly. And then hopefully the next documentary I choose for the second episode this month goes a little bit more quickly. But if you haven't watched the documentary Dopa's death, I will put it in the link in the show notes for this episode as well. I highly, highly recommend it. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And I'm going to be covering it for the Feminist Book Club on Patreon because I had to take a little bit of a break from the books this month to save my own sanity. And in that episode, I'm going to add clips from the documentary, but also a few clips from the interview that India and I did for our other podcast, Still Learning, where we spoke to the filmmaker Mia Donovan about making the film and also interviewed Juan Cortez, who is an acupuncture specialist now and former addict who went through the Lincoln Detox Center and had a lot of really amazing, wonderful things to say in that interview as well. So if that sounds like anything you'd be interested in, go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist or go to the other link in the show notes that will take you to the Patreon page and you can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month. But if you want a little bit of extra content you can you can become a feminist fave for eight dollars a month the newest and greatest addition to the feminist faves level is that you will now be receiving a recap episode every monday where i talk a little bit about the episode that was just uploaded that day any extra notes or reactions that i had once i listened back and edited so on and so forth that will be popping up once a week every single monday and also, I want to keep pumping you all up for the fact that starting in January of 2024, I will be starting Mad Gabin with Madigan, an advice segment slash confessional segment where you can send me in anything that you want, and it will be read anonymously on the podcast, and I'll give advice or react to what you had to say, so on and so forth. I think that would be a really, really fun experience for Patreon. Again, click on the link in the show notes for that or go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist. Also, I'm going to bother you yet again to please leave me a five-star review plus a quick sentence on Apple Podcasts for why you enjoy the show. It truly, truly does help push people toward hitting play on an episode that they're interested in, and it really, really is so beneficial to me, and I really appreciate it. But if you're also a fan of listening to the show on Spotify, I wouldn't hate a rating over there either. Okay, I think that's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.